Welcome to the November Intermission Podcast from Fuds on Film. I am Craig Eastman and with me, Scott Morris. Well, hello there. We'll be kicking off with Scott's thoughts on Sicario and Crimson Peak, uh, and then we'll all be chipping in to have a little discussion about Jurassic World. So without further ado, let's crack on. So Scott, your boy Guillermo, 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 Guillermo del Toro. The big G. <laughs> no, the big G. Your boy G uh, <laughs> is back with uh, Crimson Peak. Uh, what's that all about? Well, Del Toro has, for pretty much as long as I've been aware of him, a filmmaker whose work I look forward to, hmm. even in the knowledge that, for me, his hit rate's something like 50%. However, even the films that I don't personally rate, there's usually some touches to appreciate that kind of ameliorate the rest of it. And hmm. While it's a little disappointing that his latest Crimson Peak is another swing and a miss, it's certainly full of nice little touches that make this interesting, if not actually good. What's the what's the setup? Because for all of the press I've sort of seen for it, I'm not actually familiar with the premise of Crimson Peak. Its messaging has been somewhat confused, which I, I think I'll, actually, I'll, I'll touch back on that later, but it's set in the late 1800s. You're introduced to Mia Wasikowska's Gith Cushing, who is a daughter of a wealthy industrialist and an aspiring writer, although her would-be publisher isn't so taken with her intended subject matter. Edith has an affinity for ghost stories, possibly because, as a young girl, the ghost of her mother visited her to deliver the cryptic message, Beware of Crimson Peak. I hate it when that happens. Yep, it's a right pisser. Uh, Sadly, however, ghost stories aren't selling this year, and the romance novel would be a much easier sell. I'm still trying to decide some weeks after viewing the film if that's an ironic meta-reference to the film's marketing or just a happy coincidence. (laughs) So the business in here uh, picks up when Sir Thomas Sharp and his sister Lucille arrive. Uh, They're played by Tom Hiddleston and Jessica Chastain. Thomas is trying to secure funding from Edith's father, Carter, played by Jim Beaver, for a clay mining machine that he hopes will revive his family's fortunes as their mines are currently unviable and families on the verge of bankruptcy, although the Sharps take great care to disguise that. Carter's not impressed, but while Thomas sticks around to try and change his mind, a relationship blooms between Edith and Thomas. Still suspicious, Carter hires a private investigator who uncovers something from Sharp's past that, along with a bribe, forces Thomas into breaking Edith's heart and announcing his intention to depart back to England. But before he can set sail, Thomas writes a letter explaining his actions to Edith, and a suspiciously timed fatal accident befalls Carter. Thomas is there to comfort Edith, and before long the two are married and agree to sell up the family home in America and tend off to Sharp's estate, the name of which apparently hadn't come up in conversation before reaching the gates. It's known as Crimson Peak. Ominously. Due to the red clay reaching through the soil and turning the mansion's ground in improbable blood red. The once grand stately house is now a dilapidated wreck, a stiff breeze away from falling over, and with the gaping chasm in the roof, the wind's never far away. Anyway, a still happy Edith settles into the new home as best she can, but it's not long before her peace is disturbed by things going bump in the night. These ghostly visitations prompt Edith to start investigating, and soon it becomes clear that all is not seems in the Sharp family's history and their relationships. The obvious point to make, which I believe is true across pretty much all of Del Toro's films, is that this film looks gorgeous. Sumptuous, saturated colours, intricate period detail, great character design of the uh, ghosts. It's a real feast for the eyes. That's the only high point, sadly, although it would be unfair to call the rest of the film bad. The cast put in solid performances, although Hiddleston and Wasikowska are rather outshone by Jessica Chastain, helped by having an altogether more interesting, devious, jealous, vindictive character. Hiddleston and Wasikowska are lumbered with rather blander material, necessarily, until the final acts. 
the main issue with the film is that it can't seem to make its mind up whether it's a ghost film with romance in it or a romance with ghosts in it. And tellingly, if you removed all of the ghosts from the film, it would make vanishingly small degree of difference in how this film plays out. <laughs> and for my money, it'd work far better with the ghosts removed, which turns it from a curiously mild supernatural pseudo-horror into a more conventionally psychological pseudo-horror drama. So, as opposed to what purpose are the ghosts serving, because the answer would apparently be none, what is Del Toro's intent in uh, in lacing the story with these apparitions? Well, what, what purpose are they <laughs> intended to serve? It's tough to say. It's not a ghost story in the, the way of trying to scare you as best as I can tell, although some of the creatures are mm. you know, quite freaky, but the ghosts are there largely to deliver warnings and messages and essentially act as signposts, none of which could not have been found by simply poking around a bit in the mansion. <laughs> And so are they, are, they, are they the ethereal um, equivalent of Microsoft's Clippy? <laughs> it looks like you're trying to investigate a mysterious past. <laughs> <laughs> or just Google push notifications on your phone. When I, when I pull into my driveway and, and my phone suddenly tells me that I'm 10 minutes from home. Well, I'm, I'm calling it a pseudo-horror because Del Toro's adamant that this wasn't a horror film. And I agree with him, but perhaps he ought to have a word with his marketing department because... Everything from the trailer to the launch window is leading people to expect a big scary horror film. And mm. it's a basic mishandling of expectations. And I'm pretty sure that's behind the kind of crappy word of mouth that this film had, leading to it flopping quite so badly at the box office. Yeah. I mean, it is a very niche outing that's been pushed to a mass market and who were led to expect a rather different beast. And that's never a scenario that's ever worked. Well, it's bound to leave a better taste in the mouth, isn't it? Yeah. I've just cooked with an onion. I love cooking with onions. I also love apples. If someone sells me an onion on the pretense that it's an apple, I'm not going to be happy when I sink my teeth into it. So it's not that Del Toro's fallen short of the mark necessarily, is that just their expectations have been massively subverted by uh, by marketing people who are desperate to try and find some niche to pigeonhole this in. It's certainly part of it. There are issues with the rest of the film. I mean, none of the rest of it really rises above mediocre, to be honest. My main issue is not the marketing or the precise quantity or scariness of the supernatural elements that it's mm. actually kind of flat it's methodically paced but it doesn't really do much of note until the last act and even that's kind of predictable that's more than anything else for me was the buzzkill coming out of the cinema um, it's got absolutely stellar production values but it's really quite difficult to recommend this film to I, I would I would like to have seen it up until a point but um, I mean uh, I, I must say that all the marketing I've seen yeah, I, had, I had assumed it was some sort of supernatural uh, thriller or some sort of mild horror or something like that and I thought okay you know, Pacific Rim is a letdown but it looks like Del Toro's going down some sort of genre route mm. um, and I was happy enough to go and see Pacific Rim on, on the, purely on the <laughs> premise that it's a robots versus monsters movie um, and I would have gone to have seen or at least tried to have caught Crimson Peak with some interest were it not for the fact that all the word of mouth I've had back from people is no it's not that film no. um, so it's, it's really disappointing really I mean I'm sure there is a market somewhere for a gothic romance slash mild horror film but it's not one that's going to support a $55 million budget. Mm. There's a small number of people, I'm sure, who will absolutely love this film and it will be right up their street. It will be right up their particular interests. But I think for a mass market, it's never going to quite 
make it. It's the sort of film that it would be quite nice to see, I guess, when it pops up on television, if it holds uh, much mm. more interest there. Plus, it does have a nice line in borderline slapstick shovel-based violence towards the end, so that's a bonus. And I will say this for the guy, I mean, he doesn't sit still. He doesn't He doesn't pigeonhole himself in a genre and just rest there. Um, even, you know, where, where his failures have come, he has at least taken himself uh, out of what I would assume to be his comfort zone, All, although I guess kind of gothic horror he's done before with um, things like, well, maybe not gothic, but certainly a horror background predominantly he comes from this still seems like it would be far enough removed from that to be something interesting and something different so yes uh, what's he got on his plate next do we know I've heard tell of I don't know if it was directly next but I've heard tell of Pacific Rim 2 yes which surprises me so I don't know if that's quite there but yes he's certainly still managing to keep himself busy which is reassuring that they're still managing to give a well, someone who's still certainly one of the most distinctive uh, directors of our time actually mm. giving us somebody to play with despite the fact that a lot of times he doesn't actually do all that well with it but well if you can pull off another big budget thing like Pacific Rim I think did quite well by the all accounts so yes it might have been yeah. a massive pile of tosh <laughs> yes um, but it, it's made bank eventually <laughs> all right okay then so that's crimson peak uh, i guess it moving swiftly on to sicario then scott which is breaking my heart i've not had chance to go and see my emily certainly given the prevalence of this ongoing never to end war on drugs uh, particularly on the u.s mexico border and the socioeconomics that involves it's a wonder that it's not a rather more well-mined topic for serious drama than it already has been much like the other famous War on a Noun, The War on Terror, it's largely been reduced to trivialities and rara jingoistic nonsense, but Sicario seems to be making the aim at being the narco-equivalent of The Hurt Locker, and makes a pretty good case for itself, to be honest. Your beloved Emily is playing FBI agent Kate Mercer, and she's joined by her younger partner, Reggie Wayne, played by Daniel Kaluuya. Good old Reggie. They're undertaking a raid on a home that's suspected of holding suspects in a kidnapping case. This soon takes a turn both disgusting and fatal as they uncover that it's being used as a dumping ground for victims of drug traffickers. Many bodies left in cavity walls to rot, and also it happens to be booby-trapped, which sees a member of their squad killed. While this situation is given the gravity it deserves, Mercer and Wayne reflect that similar sorts of cases are happening with a depressing increase in frequency and their efforts don't seem to be making much of a dent in it. So, when they're given the opportunity to join a task force charged with curtailing the activities of the Mexican drug cartels on USA soil, she accepts and, after some ultimately needless opposition from other side, is joined by Wayne. Now, it's no surprise that this unnamed cloak and dagger outfit is being headed up by an agency man, in this case, Josh Brolin's <laughs> Matt Graver. Matt seems amiable enough, although, being as he is employed by the CIA, you're always left wondering exactly how he will stab people in the back rather than if he will stab people in the back. <laughs> <laughs> the, the agency in cinema has gone a long way in a short time from Jack Ryan's naive yet well-meaning protector of the American people to a shorthand for calculated obvious evil. I'll leave it as an exercise for the interested to reflect on whether that's a case of art catching up with reality or an insufficient PR spend on the agency's part. <laughs> Graver's team seems to compose mainly of special forces operatives, which should give some indication of how things are expected to go, supplemented as required by FBI or US Marshals to give the barest sheen of legal legitimacy to their non-wink-sanctioned activities. There's also room for the odd special advisor, such as Benicio del Toro's mysterious Alejandro, who I'm sure is on the up-and-up. Nothing exudes trustworthiness more than not revealing your surname. So they go, uh, trying to loosen the cartel's stranglehold on the Mexican border towns and generally shake things up a bit, with Kate refusing the backseat role she's been given and getting rather more involved than was perhaps intended. 
This has the adjunct effect of the cartels painting a target on her back, which of course affects Kate's private life. Now, saying much more about the plot specifics won't add much to the review, but in general it's more concerned with the friction between doing what's effective and what's in the legal frameworks, and almost all of the interpersonal conflict comes from these differences in ideology and how, or if, these can come into balance. Now, all that sounds much drier than I intended, especially as Sicario pulls off more moments of extreme tension than I've felt in the cinema for quite some time. Much like director Denis Villeneuve's previous Prisoners, it minds dark subject matter to create believable human reactions and is as well characterised as anything you could hope to see in a multiplex. And, as it turns out, having some understanding of a character helps the tension when they're throwing into danger. Being on the front line of the situation does provide ample opportunity for danger and there's two outstanding set-piece examples of ratcheting up tension that I'm reluctant to even vaguely detail in case it proves to be the mildest of spoilers, but they're real metaphorically nail-biting stuff. Not literally, of course, that's a disgusting habit. As as with Prisoners, uh, Roger Deakins is on DP duty and he's certainly got the experience to capture the dusty western feel that the script occasionally evokes as the rule of law shakes a little and the way of the gun threatens to replace it. Special mention must also be made of the pounding oppressive score from Johan Johansson, which provides effective backup to the threats on screen. So, technically and dramatically, Sicario puts very few feet wrong and as such provides one of the best movies I've seen this year. As such, it's very highly recommended. Excellent. Mm, blunt. Oh, that blunt. Oh, that blunt. Uh, when will she return my calls? Um. So then, Scott, Jurassic World, part of the summer blockbuster silly season, which broke several records this year and has left me thinking that I've been taking crazy pills. We have spoken <laughs> at length <laughs> previously about the joy that was Fast and Furious 7. Uh, and Jurassic World kind of joins up there at the top of the bo- summer box office rankings, uh, having garnered um, some critical uh, praise. I don't think it set the world alight in that uh, respect, but certainly um, reasonable to positive uh, critical success. Um, and certainly audiences seem to connect with it because it made an absolute dump truck of cash, uh, both <laughs> domestically and globally. So basically, in gen. Um, have gone ahead and created a new dinosaur theme park on top of the site of the old original Jurassic Park, uh, now called Jurassic World, uh, and it has been open now for how long at the point at which we we joined the action here? Ten years, something like that? I, I don't know exactly, but it's, it was long enough that it was getting stale, so it must have been a good four or five years, I guess. Yeah, so, um, yeah, get, I just point out, getting a little bit stale, uh, the board's obviously becoming a little bit um, uneasy, uh, the investors likewise, the park uh, now plays host to a genetically modified dinosaur, which has been bred specifically to draw the crowds. And wouldn't you just know it, it all goes a bit Pete Tong. Yeah, plot-wise, it's essentially retreading a lot of the same ground that Jurassic Park did. Whereas the first one, all the, the, the morality was all about playing God and actually bringing dinosaurs back in the first one, it's shifted somewhat in this instance to be whether we should be playing God by genetically splicing various bits of animal to each other to create new and interesting animals. But at heart, both films are essentially drawing from the same template, which is Frankenstein. Mm. Uh, They're both essentially morality tales about the the things you create destroying you. In a lot of ways, I'd have had more respect for Jurassic World if it had simply tried to be a remake of Jurassic World, uh, Jurassic Park, which is not something I would ever normally say, but... what they've tried to do in Jurassic World is have their cake and eat it by making lots of nice little references, and they are mostly quite restrained and nice references to the previous Jurassic Park film, but 
it, mm-hmm. it does try to make you buy into the mindset this is a film where I mean, this whole Jurassic experiment has gone tragically wrong three times to build three separate films about it. Now, why they would think, well, let's just build another one. I'm sure it'll be okay. What could possibly go wrong this time? And, oh, wouldn't you know, if there's some point pushing credibility a little bit, I think there wouldn't have been well, some the, kind of law against it by this point. The most disappointing thing for me is that, as you rightly point out, uh, much, much, much as the investors in Jurassic Park or Jurassic World in this case have failed to uh, to steer away from type and rebuilding the theme park exactly as it was yeah. before, as far as I can <laughs> tell. Um, so, so Universal Studios have um, done made the bizarre choice to retread almost exactly the same ground again in, in the movie and I was honestly led to believe that this would be more of a departure uh, not yeah. a reboot obviously, I've heard people talking about a reboot of the franchise which is it's absolutely not and I think, I don't think that's fair to say because I don't remember it being marketed as such but I certainly feel like I was promised something that was going to be a bit different and it, it, it really follows the form of the previous movies so closely as to be indistinguishable at points and that's not what I bought into Yeah, it is almost identical with the I guess there's a slight difference in as much as your um, Chris Pratt fella is running around, you know, claiming to have trained some of these uh, Velociraptors. Yes, which is Owen. perhaps the only the only difference that I can think of in any sort of thematic films at all. We're easily trying to control nature, and so we use that against them. But of mm. course, that ties back into some of the ulterior motives as to why the park was reopened in the first instance. Yes. But it's not particularly interesting, apart from giving that one meme that everyone's using, where he's a <laughs> that seems to be the extent of its uh, contribution to the culture. Yeah. yeah. Um, on a word on Chris Pratt as well, I was really expecting. I, I sat down to watch this movie on catch up, and appreciably, I'm sure something will be lost on the small screen. Part of the experience of a film like this is obviously seeing it on as big a screen with as badass a sound system as you can. Uh, and my my lounge is absolutely not that. <laughs> Um, my <laughs> nor is nor is Apple TV streaming, um, but yeah, I I went into this um, quite looking forward to it, expecting it to at least be a good deal of fun, and also off the back of how much I had joy, uh, enjoyed Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, far more than I had expected to, which was largely down to Chris Pratt's great, really unexpected display of uh, charisma. Yeah, it turns out the most quite likable in that film, yeah. Yeah, he held that film uh, and he held the audience's attention for over two hours in that movie with no problem whatsoever. And I came away from that film thinking, wow, yeah, I'd really like to see this guy in something else. Um, and here he's paired with Bryce Dallas Howard as Claire, who is uh, who's the park manager operations manager for the park um, and there's supposed to be there's the suggestion that there's been some prior romantic involvement here which has turned a bit sour um, and Claire is the sort of, I'm going to say something terribly misogynistic um, she's certainly um, a far more classy lady than one would expect to be hanging about with Dino Wrangler Owen um, <laughs> however throughout the film obviously the intent there is that there's going to be some sort of chemistry and some sort of frisson between them and there absolutely is none whatsoever no. as an on-screen pairing these guys have less chemistry than a glass of tap water <laughs> and that really was the only thing which could have made an appreciable difference to the movie none of that charisma that we saw from Pratt in Guardians of the Galaxy, and really just from yeah, from a from a performance point of view, disappointed. That really does apply across the whole cast as well. There's no one that's really doing particularly well. I mean, I, I guess actually the two kids might come out of it the best. Uh, there's 
Uh, Surprisingly yeah, so, yes. Claire's, um, Claire's sister has sent two children, Zach and Grey, to, to basically Gray, run around yeah. being in danger in the park. <laughs> and they probably have far more chemistry than almost all the rest of them and seem to have been directed better, but everyone else comes across incredibly flat. Um, if Fran Gann's uh, boss is just quite one tone, all the supporting cast not great. BD Wong's uh, pretty flat in it. Omar's yeah, side, well, flat. I- I don't understand the point, and obviously they brought B.D. Wong back, who was in the first movie, as, as Dr. Henry Wu. Um, mm. They brought him back for this instalment, and then proceeded to do absolutely nothing yeah. with him. <laughs> Irfan Khan is uh, Masrani, who is, uh, who is the benefactor of the part, the bank roller, who I think it's suggested was... Uh, a friend of Hammond. Yeah. Am I correct? Yeah. Am I correct? I can't. I can't even remember. Yeah, the, yeah. He, yeah. He's introduced as this altruistic guy who's very much case of look. It doesn't matter that the park's losing money. That's not what the park's about. And you think it's at any point now? This guy's. Oh, here we go. He's going to have a really sinister ulterior motive. Nah, not <laughs> at all. Not at all. He just kind of hangs about and flies a helicopter badly and provides some sort of vague comic relief. Yeah. Um, Vincent D'Onofrio, another paycheck movie, just sleepwalking his way <laughs> through. Such, such bizarre. The the most interesting thing about this movie is that director Colin Trevorrow, this is only yeah. his second feature film after 2012's completely unknown indie hit. Yeah, um, Safety Not Guaranteed. I was quite fond of. Um, it's an interesting little film, but it's not the sort of lead-in that would immediately have you go and direct a multi-million dollar uh, CG-laden monstrosity like this. It's a strange No, I appreciate why the studio would do it, because obviously I think they're trying to... You could look at it cynically and say that, oh, they're obviously just trying to buy credibility, but when they announced him as director, and I think he developed the story with Spielberg, I mean, how much of it, <laughs> how much of it is down to him and how much of it is down to Spielberg is up to yourself, but, <laughs> you know, when they announced that they brought that director on board, I was willing to give them the benefit of the doubt, and I thought, oh, actually, this is a sign that they're going to try and do something interesting with this. Yeah. Um, I admire the fact that they're going to take this guy who's largely untested but who had a successful kind of thought-provoking and engaging indie film they're going to see what he can do with this kind of a franchise much as your fella what's his chops with Godzilla and honestly it might as well have been Chris Columbus they got on board for this thing because it's so by the numbers it's um, it's almost unbelievable yeah it had the uh it had the kind of hallmarks of a Brett Ratner classic didn't it where it's got absolutely no impact on what's happened at all he's just a man who's shows up and tells the cameras in rough, rough direction to point. And it's, yeah. there's just no flair or style to it. It's, it just winds up being another one of those occasional summer CG set piece extravaganzas, uh, things like Avatar, things like uh, King Kong, mm. things things like even the original Jurassic Park, much as it pains to say at this point, uh, is, it is sold largely on the graphics, which are... Admittedly, impressive, but they won't be in a few years. Well, in in places, but I must say that there were. I want to say there were one or two points where actually I noticed some kind of very uh, dodgy CG and some actually sort of like dodgy green screen that sort of stuck out like a sore thumb. And I can't. It was a few weeks ago I watched it now, so I can't remember. I can't back that up with specifics. But there were a couple of bits where I thought, oh, actually, <laughs> hang on. <laughs> I thought you threw 150 million dollars at this thing, or 200 million dollars, or I don't know, six trillion dollars, whatever. <laughs> so yeah, I just I really really bizarre and I mean more power to them because for whatever reason the audience has lapped it up but I'm baffled as to why because it's just more of the same that made uh, Jurassic Park 3 a, f- a complete failure Yeah, I, mean, I can't say that I hated it I mean I only actually finished watching this a couple of hours ago mm. but it felt it's just super average inoffensive yeah I mean it felt very much like this was this is acceptable entertainment I've seen this film before when it was Jurassic Park but mm. it's it's acceptable enough but you talk for a bit more for 
even the big money uh, popcorn bunchers, you'd hope to get a little bit more, at least a little bit of a, bit of a twist, bit of something a little bit exciting. And this one didn't really present more than uh, a very average experience. Uh, I just wonder that it's maybe connected with an audience who are obviously quite possibly not even here when the first Jurassic Park film showed yeah. up, or at least were certainly too small to have seen it, and who who maybe first experienced that on the smaller screen on VHS or DVD, and that this is their first, you know, probably weren't that interested in Jurassic Park 3 at the time, and this is perhaps their first big... <laughs> yes, this is perhaps their, their uh, first big screen experience of it, and it, it does push enough of those buttons that the first film did in a way, but I mean, from my perspective, having seen all all four of these films now, this is this is like just a super template five out of ten. It doesn't do anything wrong, but it doesn't do anything yeah, particularly. Exactly. And it kind of leads back to what I was saying earlier. I just do not understand why they didn't just reboot it. It would have made more sense. Just, yeah. Rather than everyone just going, oh yes, I'm sure I'm sure nothing will go wrong with dinosaurs now. They must have sorted that out yeah. somehow. And they certainly they have. I mean, they're they're hinting at the fact that in, in the great Matrix tradition, now that they've had a film which was a massive success, they're already talking about oh, we always envisaged it as being a trilogy. <laughs> um, and you know, Colin Trevorrow has got these uh, directions he wants to take the you know, the next two instalments in where they want to develop the story of dinosaurs from a a, a military engineered uh, standpoint, uh, you know, to be used as, as weapons on the battlefield. That's not something that you, you, you would have been excluded from doing had you just, as you pointed out, just remade the first movie. It's puzzling on a number of levels, but it's the sort of thing that would be a, a kind of minor footnote in what could have otherwise been a very entertaining film, but it just kind of isn't. So there's not really an awful lot to talk about in it from my point of view. It was just like, it was all just a bit flat. It was fine. No, nothing particularly awful happened in it, but it just wasn't all that great and there wasn't really anything to hang your hat on and, and claim that you actually liked much of it. Most most bizarre. I, I very much doubt if we'll be talking about this. This film is going to go into the, the same kind of memory hole as something like uh, King Kong did. There's just nothing mm-hmm. interesting about it other than its graphical splendour. And when that goes away, and when that is diminished by time, there'll be nothing to no. leave no imprint whatsoever on the world of cinema. No, I doubt you'll ever hear us referring to it again. It's just the, the legacy it's left behind for me is a summer that had me, you know, a summer at the box office, which had me largely scratching my head. Um, <laughs> you know, as, as few slices of it as I've sampled, I just think this, and Fast and Furious Seven. That, that's the the only reference I will I reference point for this I will have is remembering it as the flip side of Fast and Furious Seven and what a what a heinous bizarre um, <laughs> thing that the box office success of those films represents. And I, I really do hope next year I wake up in the summer and it turns out this was all a strange dream. I miss most of the big summer franchises, but when you're thinking about things like Terminator Genesis and Avengers. Age of Ultron, none of that was particularly inspiring. So uh, the only mm. the only unadulterated winner was, of course, Mad Max, which I cannot recommend highly enough. And I still have somehow managed not to catch up with. <laughs> Sorry, Max. Oh, he's so mad. He's so mad. Cool. So what will we be talking about next time that we speak to these good people, Scott? We will be back on, crikey, the 1st of December with our oh. expose, our critical heart-hitting documentary on the works and life and times of Takeshi Kitano. Ah, good old beat Takeshi. Mm. That's one to look forward to. Well, for us, certainly. <laughs> mileage, may, mileage may vary for you, listener. <laughs> no, that's great. Uh, looking forward to uh, speaking in depth uh, <laughs> and being a little bit more prepared for that one than I was for this one. <laughs> um, thank you once again for listening, guys. As Scott points out, we will speak to you again on the 1st of December. And in the meantime, take care of yourselves. I was Craig and Scott was Scott. Bye-bye. Cheerio. Cheerio.